The episode today is a replay from Fringe Legal Edge. This is something that's broadcasted live on Fridays at 11am Chicago and 5pm UK. Just in case you're not able to make this time, we wanted to present the conversation for your complete entertainment and enjoyment. Before we get started, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the Fringe Legal Newsletter. This is a weekly roundup of interesting things. Every Sunday, I send out an exclusive email with three to five of the coolest things we've explored that week. It could include exclusive content, sneak peek at future projects, books, articles, or new hacks. The emails are available only if you subscribe to the newsletter, and more than 530 people receive it every single week. You can join up at fringelegal.com slash newsletter. It's completely free. Mr. Vincent, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? Very good. Very good. So thank you everyone for joining us today. This is Fringe Legal Edge. This is version two of a special, a very special segment I like to call Chatter, where I sit down with my friend Vincent and we talk about how many topics we can get through. We have five on the roster today. We'll see what we get through. If you missed the first one, this will be a mix of some topics that are legal profession specific and some topics that have nothing whatsoever to do with the legal profession, but uh, are interesting nonetheless. But Vincent, thank you for joining me again today. Certainly. I'm excited to be here and this was fun last time. So hopefully people found it interesting and I'm hopeful that it'll be fun this time as well. (laughs) We were supposed to do this once a month, but I think we definitely missed a month in the middle. We'll see how it goes. Um, all right. Just to set the, I guess, the agenda for today, the five things that that we had spoke about briefly were discussion about Deloitte buying a UK law firm, a law firm, Kemp Little. We wanted to talk about the ILTA technology survey. There is something interesting around uh, change management, let's call it, that you found on Reddit around how to improve people re- reporting phishing attempts. There was talk of the new iPhone and actually more specifically to do with upgrade cycles and lastly, basically regulating social networks. So we'll try and see how many of those we can get through. If you don't mind, if you can start with the Deloitte news for anyone that missed it, Deloitte UK, I believe last week announced that they acquired a another law firm. It's called Kemp Little. They are a UK only law firm. They're about 100 or so people, 86 lawyers, 29 partners. And it's interesting for a number of reasons. So Deloitte announced a plan, I think two and a half years ago, of improving their footprint within the legal services market. And of course, there's plenty of information out there about how the big four is going to be a big threat to law firms. So the question becomes, is this a step forward in that direction or not? And for those that have been around for a while will recognize that this is not the first time the big four have foyered into the space back in the 1990s. And I did have to do some research on this because I'm not as well versed, but back in the 1990s, as it was then the big five uh, with Arthur Anderson, the fifth one, they did try and actually attempted to take quite a large deep step into the legal realm. So at that stage, there was a lot of M&A activity. There was a lot of service delivery activity. And unfortunately, because of a number of scandalous things that came about, mostly to do with accounting practices, A, Arthur Anderson no longer exists. And B, due to some regulations, certainly in the US, 
basically these accountancy firms cannot offer non-auditing service to audit clients. That put a pretty big stop in the US and what was going to happen. That's not the case in the UK, specifically in um, other, and other jurisdictions. So in the UK, you can actually provide these services. And if you look at the landscape, you have the likes of KPMG, you have the likes of EOI and Deloitte and PwC, who all have essentially a law firm arm. So they do provide legal services. And many of them are quite sizable. I think Deloitte, frankly, is the smallest of the four. So this is a really interesting step. It could mean a lot. It could mean absolutely nothing. Partly it's just me ranting, but it's, I think it's, it'll be an interesting step to see where they take this because part of the acquisition, if you can call it that, was because Kemp Little as a law firm, which has been around since the 1990s as well, actually had some Arthur Anderson individuals or ex-Arthur Anderson individuals as part of their managing committee was formed to help serve technology clients. And one of the things they've been trying to do for the last five or six years has been to expand into a different way of providing legal services to offer consultancy services, where of course, Deloitte wants to go into law firm arm. So it worked out well. So now we'll have to see what will happen next. So the next year or so will be an interesting telling zone. I've been talking for a while. What do you think, Vincent? I do think it's interesting news, right? And there does exist this hard barrier that I think to a certain extent makes U.S. firms just naturally less concerned about this, but maybe the right way to think about it, if you are maybe a U.S. firm that doesn't see yourself competing with one of these organizations for international business or things like that, is that there's a reason that these ventures are profitable. And it's typically a combination of scale and how product is actually delivered. And I think that that is what warrants thought, right? Because if I find myself in a situation where I know that there's an artificial barrier that's keeping my competition out and keeping me profitable, that's concerning because it means that there's still an opportunity for disruption. And that, I've had this conversation with a couple of times over the last three years because I first started to really dive into some of the history around this specific concept about that time ago. And it, it is interesting to see how firms have just not taken action to try to pr- protect themselves from those disruptors, or ultimately the, the correct answer is probably be the disruptor if you can be, because it'll give you a good opportunity. So I, I do think it's, it, it's an interesting scenario, because again, if you're a US firm, especially if you're a regional US firm that's not in direct competition for these specific dollars, it's probably something that you can file off into the back of your mind, but it does speak to a wider pattern of opportunity to disrupt legal service delivery. And we'll probably continue to see that through um, alternative legal service providers as those organizations evolve over the next five, 10, 15 years. Yeah, it's, there's two things that are really interesting. One is if you just think about the regulations were put in place for a good reason at the time, but it's been two decades since then. Things have changed significantly and it's not going to be there forever. It's not a, so there will be at some point a challenge. And if it's in the, if it's in the interest of the market, if it's in the interest of the clients, then it will get overturned. And that means there will be a number of new entrants. It doesn't mean that they're going to make waves immediately, but that's the, and that's the thing about disruption. You often don't notice it until it's too late. And th- this is 
has been on the horizon for a long time elsewhere in the world. And the second thing is just to share size and scope and really the model that the big four and others have is just, I think, generally difficult for a lot of law firms to comprehend. For one, there is this thing which I absolutely dislike of lawyers and non-lawyers. You have just legal professionals and when you start changing the way you think about these things, there is an impact downstream to the entire business. And two, if you just look at the sheer number of people that the big four employ and the revenue they have deep pocket, I'm going to pick on Kirkland and Ellis for no other reason that I have the data available. Their revenue is around $3 billion. If you look at Deloitte's revenue, it's 10 times that, it's more than 10 times that, $38 billion right? So that means for them to go and make these kinds of plays, it is actually relatively approachable. And they're not, of course, they're not just going to throw money at things, but it, they're doing this because there's obviously a need and there is a strategy that they want to at least experiment on and execute on to see how well it works. I think there'll be a lot more of this, I suspect, next year. This was supposed to happen, I believe, from at least my, my cursory reading around March, April time was delayed a little bit due to, of course, the pandemic. So we'll see. You know, we'll see. And Deloitte certainly has been making some very high, high value hires, and they've been making some, yeah, some interesting hires. So there's a pathway there. So anyway, yeah, um, conscious of time. So the next thing I wanted to chat about was the ILTA tech survey, which also came out about a week or so ago. I think you'll probably have a lot more to say on this, but for anyone who missed it, ILTA does a survey once a year. They've been doing this for. I think 20, 30 years, maybe more. Uh, yeah. Someone can fact check me on that. Around 470 firms took part in this. Of those, there were 103 or so thousand lawyers and over 200,000 total people that took part in the survey. Yeah, I know you've gone through, It's if you've read the entire document, it's quite meaty, it's 380 pages. Um, it's a good bit of data. <laughs> yeah, I, I know you've gone through it. What were your key thoughts? Yeah, certainly. So it, first off, anyone who's listening to this show right now should have a copy of this. So if you don't, go get one, <laughs> because it's absolutely data that, that you need to have access to, at least to understand what's going on within the legal profession and specifically within legal tech. I think, so it, my key takeaway from this, so obviously there's the big things this year, right? There's COVID, there's remote working, there's, it seems a critical mass of organizations finally moving to cloud infrastructure. So that's no longer a, are you moving to cloud? It's when are you moving to cloud? The thing that I found really interesting, but I, I also think speaks to a wider pattern in the industry in certain scenarios, is the reminder that even though you're a smaller firm, there are advantages to, that are core to your business that allow you to be more agile. And the way that I saw this manifested was organizations that are leveraging Exchange Online versus Exchange On-Prem. When we look at, if, and if you look at the results from the from the survey, you'll see that way a, a significantly higher percentage of mid-sized law firms have moved to Exchange Online versus their larger, more than 1,000 user competitors. And there's lots of different reasons that those infrastructure changes take time. But every time I see little things like that, it, it just reminds me of the competitive edge of the, the smaller and nimbler organizations because... Yes, Exchange Online can be viewed as infrastructure, and yes, Exchange On-Prem can be viewed as infrastructure, and maybe it's just that. But 
what it speaks to is the fact that these organizations have gone cloud first and they now have the ability to do things like spin up remote working. They have the ability to do things like spin up new offices or new organizations or bring on new practice groups with significantly less effort than their larger competitors. We see this all the time in firms where we'll see a practice group or a specific partner or a group of partners that'll move from firm to firm. And when we think about this from the perspective of IT professionals, the fact that you can reduce the effort for a move like that from maybe two weeks of effort or three weeks of effort, right? Or maybe more than that, down to what is hopefully provisioning accounts and moving content. That's a really significant, in my opinion, competitive advantage compared to some of the larger firms. There was some other things that I found interesting. We look at the, like the prevalent use of, of Zoom, which I think is interesting. And I think my opinion on this is probably not commonly held, but I think we'll see that platform probably dwindle a little bit as Microsoft continues to try to be the, the all-encompassing technology platform that you leverage. And the fact that Teams is bundled with your, oh, I can't remember if it's E3 or E5 subscription, and the fact that it's, it's already there, it's already in your tool set, it means that there's not going to be a reason to use these extra services. So I, I do think that there's going to be an increase in those types of scenarios where firms will start to identify what they can do with their existing technology offerings, specifically Microsoft 365, because that is an incredibly powerful platform. And we'll start to probably see some of the point solutions that were adopted over the last year go away. It's a similar story to what you and I tell in our day jobs about platformatization and how that single point of contact is easier to manage. But I really do think that's true and that there will be a lot of opportunity, maybe not even just in video conferencing. I think what Microsoft is doing when it comes to things like VoIP service, although not mature, it's going to be an interesting technology in probably a year and a half. So those were my key takeaways. There was a lot of other stuff. I like to read the kind of silly things in there. But I think some of those points are really interesting because if you talk about 365, Exchange Online, and the cloud point is because one of the things the survey does, it shows you the trend of asking the same questions in the last three, four, five years, whatever it might be. And what you are saying is, of course, correct, which is the generally smaller and mid-sized firms are moving to the cloud now. But if you look at the cloud strategy for every firm, generally the sentiment is we are going cloud with the next upgrade. That's mm-hmm. roughly where they're going. And of course, there are considerations, right? So I don't want to hold the much larger, if you have three, four, even a thousand employees migrating people to the cloud is a much more challenging task than, you know, migrating 50 people. That's just the reality of how the world works, but it's good to hear that at least it's much more cloud focused. And the point about teams though is I've had at least three conversations just this week on just teams and zoom and WebEx and all these other tools. One there is, weirdly, there was a conception, I was in a chat this morning, where someone said, oh, Zoom's only been around since this year. I was like, it's not. And it's been around for a lot longer. I don't think it's been as heavily implemented within certainly the legal sphere. And so that's, of course, changing. And it's certainly, if you look at one piece of technology that came out as a clear winner, where the brand recognition just shot through the roof, it is 
undoubtedly Zoom. It just became a overnight for most people and kudos to them for doing a good job with that. The Teams thing is interesting because even though a lot of firms want to move to Teams, they have to consider the implications because it is, it's a double-edged sword that it is much more ingrained with their environment. So they do have to consider what are the impacts of opening this up to the outside. I think as an internal collaboration tool, it's much easier to adopt. But when you start using Teams as your regular meeting and conferencing software, that becomes important. And of course, it's important to remember that Microsoft has been in the VoIP game for a long time, right? Skype is still there in the background, just lurking in the shadows. And they the research and actually how Skype was founded, they were way ahead of their times. And you know, Microsoft has learned a lot from how to handle complex VoIP web calls across different jurisdictions and regions uh, and with Azure and everything else, I think they can do a really good job. And now will be the, the, yeah, I think all of these things really are coming to the forefront this year. And over the next six, nine months, they become the testing ground to see, okay, can we support all of the huge amount of users? And every one of those providers have had issues. And that's just, you know, par for course, and you have to go through that. Certainly. I think, so just my favorite incidental example of Teams, maybe security or information governance issues is that, so out of the box, you can do external calls with Teams. You can have external participants in those calls and those calls can turn in, turns into persistent chats with external participants. And those persistent chats have no limitation on content that can be put into them by default. So one of the things that uh, we were messing with this the other day in one of our test environments, and we were like, what could we send through here? And the answer is anything, right? So EXEs, all the stuff that you would normally block on <laughs> inbound email, right? Word documents with crazy macros in them that um, cause all sorts of problems. So there is certainly a lot of effort to be put in still when it comes to the actual governance of content as it moves through that platform, but it will certainly be interesting. Yeah. And uh, two other points, and the last one will probably lead to the, the next thing we want to discuss, but one, one of them obviously got highlighted for very obvious reasons is there's much more demand for a distributed workforce. Everyone's dealing with that. And with that comes a challenge, which is relatively new for most law firms of a supporting home offices. So actually just even most users having access to laptops. Uh, we, we know there was issues earlier this year across the world where people didn't have enough machines and now become, how do we support all of these people if they're not coming back to the office for three, six months, or in some instances, ever as I don't think any firm has, but as certainly other businesses have moved to where remote work only for now till the end of time, what happens? And if you look at the expense and the lawyer actually in the UK has a really good, I think they did some data study on some of the UK firms on how much money they spend on real estate. And it's fascinating. Real estate is expensive. So, well, as you reduce the amount of people that come into the office, what, what else do you do with that? Do you reduce your footprint? Do you use it for something else? So that'll be an interesting one. And the last one was there is a section in the report talking about annoyances and issues. Uh, and there, no surprise, you know, what's been top of mind for everyone for, you know, for the last four years still is there, which is user acceptance of change, managing expectations of change, essentially all sorts of change management things. And that becomes even more important as we ask individuals to learn new technologies as we ask individuals to learn new systems, new ways of doing things, different ways of doing the same thing. Change management is absolutely key. And I think as a, certainly if you are a software provider, 
you need to be able to do a good job of that. That becomes crucial. You can't just sit, no one ever thought you could just give people something and expect them to use it for the most part. Uh, you have to hold people's hand. You have to give them guidance and you have to do so well. And I thought that would be a good segue to your, uh, your Reddit post that you came across. Certainly. So um, as I, I imagine, no one here is surprised. I do spend um, a, a lot of time on Reddit, my social network. I don't really use anything else. And one of the, the subreddits that I frequently uh, spend time in is the sysadmin subreddit that is just sysadmins talking about sysadmin things and lots of content that I personally don't care about or don't gain value from. But every once in a while, there'll be something that um, I see and <laughs> find interesting. And it was a silly post. It was, I think, the top post over the last month on that subreddit. And it was uh, a one paragraph explanation of how an organization got themselves to a 0% click rate on phishing emails, right? So as any organization does, they go through and they run phishing tests and they manage to find a way to get their users to not click on that phishing link and know they didn't just block all inbound email. <laughs> there was actually some kind of thought to it. Um, and it was really simple. They gave out a little gold star emoji. They gave out a gold star emoji every time someone reported a phishing email. That was it. There was no physical reward. There were no dollars exchanged. But the gold star emojis spawned an internal economy supported by gold star emojis. So people started to keep track of the number of gold star emojis that they had been awarded. They started to trade gold star emojis for certain things and they even turned them into or argued around, I should say, uh, the proper exchange rate for gold star emojis to Shrewdbucks, which is a reference to the US version of the office if you've ever seen it. And I think that you know, it's a silly thing, but it drives home the point that first off, people are all children and don't let anybody tell you anything different. But secondly, when there's a, when there's a what's in it for me, a whiffum in, in the words of Joy, who was at, you know, at La Terra before she was at ILTA today. If there's a, a what's in it for me, people are so much more likely to take the actions that we want them to take. And even if it's tiny, even if it's a gold star emoji, folks will see that as, oh, there's some positive interaction. There's some level of what's in it for me, the fun, it's silly. And so I'm going to go through and take this action. And obviously, you know, there's lots of things around corporate cultures and, and different organizations are going to respond to that in different ways. But I think the core of it is something that a lot of times we forget. So whether it's me in my role, on the vendor side of a partnership and, and trying to make sure that we do the right level of kind of communication about value and how our technology works, how things work logistically, or you know, even if I think about this just from you know, an inside a firm standpoint, whether it's from the standpoint of a trainer or a security technologist or whatever it is, if we don't include those really small whiffums, right, the what's in it for me, then we oftentimes miss the mark on getting people to make little changes. And that really spoke to me. I also just think the story is absolutely hilarious, uh, which is part of the reason that I wanted to share it. But it really is a good example of how we can affect really significant and impactful change for no dollars, right? The gold star emoji cost no one anything. <laughs> and it uh, made that organization much more secure. I think there's lots of examples of that. The story is nice and delightful, and hopefully people will remember that because of it. But ultimately, it goes down to 
how do you create change on something that's really important, right? Because frankly, no one, no one likes, I think if you do, if you did a survey, a straw poll of how many people report phishing emails, it will be pretty low. And it's an important thing. It's something that has great impact and reporting any sort of phishing email, if you have the right setup, is actually pretty simple, but people still don't do it. And generally it comes back down to, to what you said, what's in it for them, but also how do you actually reward them for it? Because as important as it is, and people get the importance, I don't think there's you know, general ignorance on it. They do want to get that feedback. There needs to be that feedback loop of you accomplishing something from it and in this example, I think that, that's super helpful. I spoke to actually someone on Fringy Galeja a couple of months ago now who set up a knowledge management system at Hewitt-Packard and they had a similar thing. They wanted people to share content and knowledge and, and the way to do that, they created a star system where every time you did this, you got certain points and each month or each quarter, whatever it was, um, you people that shared the most amount of information or information that's been reused the most amount of time, whatever the criteria is, they want something. It doesn't have to be crazy, but whether it's just an awarded name or some sort of monetary compensation or whatever else it might be, those things are so impactful that people don't think about it. And sometimes it is such a simple and seemingly silly idea that has the biggest impact. And what I liked about it, because yeah, some, of the, some of the comments in that thread, by the way, which has about 750 comments, which is insane, are, well, we tried this and the way we achieve people to not get fish is to block all incoming emails, which of course is not, not a practical approach whatsoever. Yeah, I, I think it's a really interesting point. And the other thing I'll say uh, for anyone who's looking for a fun Friday watch, uh, there is a video that aired on TED around what happens when you reply to spam. It's worth watching. I think it's by James VTech or something along those lines, V-E-I-T-C-H uh, from memory. And he basically replied to a spam email and it's just a story of well, what happens. And it's awesome. It's about nine minutes long, worth watching. I guarantee you it will leave you in stitches and it's a real story. So we have about three minutes left. Do you want to talk very quickly about the iPhone upgrade cycles? Yeah, certainly. So I struggle with how to not just turn this into a marketing piece for Apple, but <laughs> I think there's a couple of interesting things to point out. So I personally am, am pretty passionate about environmental responsibility and how organizations keep track of their environmental responsibility. And I think oftentimes because of the culture that we live in, we think about what action can we take to make an improvement. And sometimes it's more about the action that you don't take. And I think a great example of this is if you keep a car on the road, even if it's not the best car for 30 years, that car has a way better environmental impact than someone who's buying a new car every five to try to chase you know, increasing mile per gallon estimates, or we bought three Piriuses and then a Tesla. That person has had a, a really significant negative impact compared to someone who you know, bought a I don't know, a Dodge Ram in <laughs> 1970 and, and kept that the entire time. But anyways, so Apple's phone upgrade cycles have been increasing really significantly in time. They're at about four years now. And what that means is that the average iPhone user keeps a phone for about four years. The other thing that's really interesting to this is that Apple has also put an official or kind of a better official support policy in place around how long they're providing software updates for certain devices. And the iPhone 5C, which came out, was, was last sold, I think four years ago and, and originally was released north of seven and a half years ago, that phone just now went EOL from a software perspective. 
And I think that those two things speak volumes to the right kind of environmental impact thought. How do we keep devices in people's hands longer? And I think you know, to translate it to the, the audience that we have here today, that thought process about what can I not do that has more impact is probably something that we should be pursuing every once in a while because it can yield important results. So that was my little... Uh, yeah, no, I think that's great. Um, I think we have about a minute or so left, but generally, I, I think across all providers, whether it's Android, Apple, or some something else that exists out there, uh, phone upgrade cycles are slowing, as they should be. Uh, I think it's also because we're getting to a, a point in hardware innovation where there's less monumental changes being added to a phone that warrants someone to move and that's okay i think there needs to be a next big thing that that will happen that will get people to move along um, until then there should be software improvements there should be you know, basically workflow improvements for lack of a better word and what else can i do with my phone that i couldn't think of before and you know, as we think about how people are coming up with ingenious ways of using their phones for example a lot of people can now whether they know it or not use their phone as a webcam pretty good phones have much better cameras than your webcams uh, so how can you use old phones for a webcam for example maybe good use case but yeah generally the environmental responsibility should be in back of not just individuals mind but certainly for companies and the way you do that is by supporting the older hardware there is a there's a deeper line which we won't go into today around well what happens to old phones and uh, that's a topic for another day but i know we're just at time so thank you for joining me vincent for everyone else i will include some of the links that we talk about in the fringe legal newsletter check it out fringelegal.com and if we don't speak to you before then have a wonderful weekend thank you very much for having me on thanks listening and I hope you enjoyed that discussion. Before you go, please share this with one other person and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen. This podcast was produced by me, Abhijat Saraswath. Paula Chrysostomu is the manager for the show and Priti Saraswath is the content strategist. You can listen to all previous episodes and reach out to us at fringelegal.com. Thank you. Thank you.